Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Well, Peter, it's a pleasure to be uh, back in conversation with you and talking about the state of the world and the financial markets, our particular interest. Since we last spoke, well, we spoke in January and we made the point that the year had got off to a very good start. And if you believe the old market saw that so goes January, so goes the year, we could be in for a, a very good year this year for asset returns. But of course, February is the miserable month. And uh, I'm afraid a lot of that uh, gloss has gone off the markets in the last month or so. Certainly, February was a poor month for bonds and equities, generally speaking. And um, as we go into March, the big story is still what's happening in the bond market. And uh, is the bond market going to prevail in its view that the Federal Reserve cannot be uh, trusted with what it says when it embarks on its hawkish rhetoric? Uh, I wonder where you would like to start on that, Peter. What is your take on how things have moved on since we last spoke? It's very nice to be back talking to Jonathan. And funnily enough, the longer we wait between podcasts, the more there is to discuss at the next podcast. So in that sense, you're quite right. January was uh, light at the end of the tunnel. February was a bit of a slap in the eye with a dead fish. And March has only just started. Uh, Yesterday, we had some pretty hawkish comments by the Federal Reserve chairman, who is actually remains the most important of all world central bankers, because he moves markets with words. And before we go into details, yesterday was a terrible day or relatively bad day for bonds. But what was very interesting is at the long end of the bond market, the yields actually went down while they went up at the short end, which is obviously an indicator of a recession coming up. My personal interpretation of why bond prices at the long end rose is because he said inflation is much too high, we will continue and do whatever is necessary, and we will succeed. Now, you may think that this is a comment and a thought from somebody who is eternally optimistic. You may well be right. But we used to say, don't fight the Fed. And is it now time to say, don't fight the bond markets either? And so therefore, I think that this clash of the titans will continue for a while until the numbers improve, which they could next week. So that's my kind of background, top-down interpretation. Yes, well, we're recording this on March the 8th. And uh, as you said, uh, Jay Powell has completed the first day of his testimony before Congress. He has an annual meeting with Congress, both the Senate and the House, and on two successive days. I'm not quite sure why they do that. They have to repeat himself mostly the next day. And he came out pretty hawkish, as you said. And the bond market, so the, the yield curve, as you mentioned, the difference between the long bond and the shorter bonds, has inverted to a degree that we haven't seen for a long time. I think I read that the difference between the 10-year and the two-year, for example, which is one of the common ways of measuring the yield curve, is that it's most inverted since 1981. And if you look at the gap between the 30-year and the two-year US government bond, the Treasury, Uh, That is now uh, its widest in recorded history, I think. So 111 basis points difference between what you get for a a short-term bond, a two-year bond uh, issued by the U.S. government, and a 30-year bond issued by the U.S. government. So 
that is normally seen as a very negative indicator, as you said, and normally indicates that the markets think there's going to be a recession. The argument against that, I guess, is that we just don't know these days how far the yield curve is actually being distorted by what the central banks themselves have been doing for the last few years. And there are some who cling to the view that actually this particular well-established indicator of future market movements should not be relied on anymore. But uh, I'm one of those old-fashioned people who think that probably we should stick with the old rules uh, until or unless we know otherwise. I guess the other point, Peter, though, which I would interested your comments on would be, I mean, the way that the bond market expectations of future yields have gone in the last year, I mean, they've basically been all over the place. They change rapidly from one month to the next. So, you know, the bond market may be very wise in its considered view about the world, but they really have been uh, all over the place for the last few months. So it's quite difficult to actually put much reliance on what they think is happening now. You could argue that basically we just don't know. Everything is in a very different regime to the one we're used to, and therefore there's just uncertainty, and that is creating this volatility. What do you think about that? Spot on, I'd say. I'd put it another way is that there is a lot of noise, a lot of moving parts at the moment, more moving parts than there usually are. Usually it's a little bit easier in calmer times to make head or tail of what these markets uh, are doing. And so what it boils down to is that we as investors have to separate the noise, of which there's plenty, and the signals, which of course are much more important than the noise. The media are not very helpful in all this because whichever newspapers you read or reports, the vast majority of them are pessimistic and they stir it up generally. And for them, the only news that's good is bad news, so to speak. But you touched on something which I think we should discuss a little bit. You touched on the yields and the way that the bond market is going all over the place. And the reason why this is important is because as Chris Waller, who is one of the Fed governors, who is usually one of the more sensible ones, said only last week, and I quote, wishful thinking is not a substitute for hard evidence, end of quote. So I was thinking, yes, sure, that's fine. But what hard evidence? You've got vast majority of the observers who take the latest inflation figures, which we know we've discussed this for a while, uh, show that core inflation is sticky. And we also know why, where the labor markets are tight and where they're less tight. That has been well rehearsed. But the minority of observers are saying actually that inflation numbers are lagging indicators. What we need to do is to look forward. And the way you look forward is you look at the real yields, the, the tips yield, those that protect the investor against the erosion of his capital through inflation. If you look at that market a little bit more closely, you'll see, first of all, that real yields are positive. So they're sending a different signal from the lagging indicators, but they are leading indicators. But you'll also notice that although there are various countries, the US primarily, but also the UK and France and Germany, that have a two-way market and market makers, I suppose, for inflation-protected bonds, nonetheless, the fact is that the this corner of the market is not particularly useful because it, it's not big enough to be taken seriously. And they also say, the critics, that this is a market which is being manipulated. There's a very prominent newsletter, a daily 
newsletter that claimed that the inflation protected bond market is manipulated, but without any evidence. And I've been doing a bit of research. So I think that that is important. And I wonder if you, Jonathan, have any thoughts on this particular subject, let's say from a business school perspective. I know that you know a number of prominent academics, and I just wonder whether you have any thoughts on that. Yes, well, I do have some thoughts on that. I mean, it's uh, by chance last month, I was actually listening to the latest uh, annual report from professors Dimson Marsh and Staunton, who are three uh, veteran London Business School financial economists who uh, produce this annual study of how all the key drivers of future asset returns uh, have performed over the last 120 odd years. It's the most comprehensive study of markets all around the world. And they do have some interesting comments on this. I mean, you're absolutely right. The thing about the real bond yield, if you like, the real interest rate that is uh, the cornerstone of the financial market, the way it works, I mean, it has seen some very dramatic moves. And we've gone back to having a positive real yield, which is the first time for several years on issued government bonds. But I could remind you that back in 2000, which is a couple of decades ago, the real interest rate on US bonds was actually 4%. Then it went all the way down to minus 1.5% in 2021 in the you know aftermath of the uh, the pandemic, but it's been on a downward trend ever since the global financial crisis. And now it's clawed its way back up to a positive level. It's somewhere between half and 1%, depending which particular bond you're looking at. And of course, that has enormous consequences because it influences so many things. It influences the cost of borrowing for companies and for governments themselves. It influences the kind of returns you can expect to make from Uh, different asset classes. And we've seen a big sell-off in uh, a lot of uh, other asset classes that are affected by uh, real interest rates, uh, notably property is one, commercial property, infrastructure, other things like that, alternative assets. They have responded and they've fallen in price as well. And it does have a bearing on where we go in the future, if you believe the numbers. But what we don't know, of course, is where those real yields are going. Are we going back to a what used to be a more normal level of you know positive real yields, somewhere in the range of anywhere between 1% and 4%, as, as I said, we had at the turn of the century? That's the big question. And I don't think anybody actually has a pretty good clue on that because we don't yet know where inflation is going to end up. And therefore, we don't know exactly what kind of level of interest rates will be needed to maintain a positive real return, if that is indeed where we're headed. And most market participants don't have a memory of the time when inflation was a problem. My working assumption is that investors generally, however sophisticated, because of this lack of institutional memory, if you like, of what's gone before, are being too optimistic about where inflation is going to end up. It's not very likely to end up back around permanently around the 2% level that the central banks are targeting. I don't know if you agree with that, but that would be my thought on that. And I think that's potentially why one has to be very cautious looking ahead. That's a sort of Monday morning feeling, which uh, I certainly recognize. And in fact, there are some commentators who are now saying that assuming that what you've just said is the new normal, that the 2% inflation target is a thing of the past. But now the discussion is whether this will cause central banks actually to adjust their inflation target upwards, say to 3% or 3.5%. And what that will do obviously to bond markets and to financial markets in general, but also to what happens within the equity markets. As you know, Jonathan, you and I have discussed for years and years and years how an indebted balance sheet is dangerous. And you could argue that it's now more dangerous than ever because 
irrespective of whether it's nominal or real yields, but certainly real yields, if they're destined to go up by a, a couple of percentage points and stay there, then I would have thought that the investor needs to be much more vigilant about what he buys. And I know that, for example, in the UK, what investors love are things like cheap price earnings ratios and high above average dividend yields. And those are more or less the two most important uh, yardsticks for them. I think that one has to look at balance sheets more than ever today. And that transforms the market into a stock pickers market, which I'm sure you'll agree. There's, there are so many moving parts. You have to take a, a medium to long term view, adjust your portfolio accordingly. And there are going to be, I think, probably big winners and big losers because last year was different. Last year, you had an enormous increase in interest rates and bond yields, the likes of which we hadn't seen for decades. And that created an enormous pressure where the, the problem of last year was clearly a problem of valuation and also of liquidity, but especially of valuation, as these otherwise very respectable companies got knocked badly in their share prices, even where these companies were not indebted, had strong balance sheets, were once removed from the bond market, had pricing power and all the other attributes. The way that these companies' share prices have started the year is probably indicative of a change in sentiment away from purely valuation to actually underlying earning power and to the development of future earnings. But that means that you can't simply buy value stocks because you think that growth stocks will be out of favor because the bond yields are going up. That's too simplistic. That was right last year. But I don't think that's going to make some serious portfolio returns this year, nor maybe even next year. So I do think that if central banks will adjust their inflation targets upwards, and we won't know that for a while, and they're not going to admit it, then this could have ramifications at the end of which the stock pickers or business pickers, as we do, the talents will be much more important at least for the time being. Well, let's hope so. I think it's also worth bearing in mind, though, the question about what one actually should be owning at all in the first place. I mean, you've been talking about what kind of equities will do well, and, and I'm sure you're right that uh, in relative terms, the kind of quality growth companies that you invest in will do better because they don't have balance sheets to worry about and so on. And they also have pricing power and ability to go on earning good returns, even in a high inflation environment. But I think we have to keep in mind the broader historical context again, which is as was so clearly demonstrated again in this annual study by Dimson, Marsh and Co., is that inflation, high or relatively high inflation, is not good for equity returns in general. Equities are not an inflation hedge. It's one of the key messages they wanted to get across. And I think that's absolutely true. They do produce positive real returns over time. Uh, but in the short term, when you actually got inflation, they're not that actually effective as a hedge against it. In other words, the benefits of the ability to earn real profits over time does take time to, to come through again. And so therefore, this is a bad environment for uh, equities, obviously very bad for bonds as well. If you have got high and rising inflation, we know they're going to suffer. So the question, as you say, is a lot about if you're going to invest in equities, how much? And if so, what kind of equities are you going to invest in? So I think we would certainly agree about that. But unfortunately, there's no law that says that um, 
you know, valuations couldn't come down further, even in this kind of world. There's no guarantee that uh, stocks have to trade on a particularly high price-earnings ratio. And I think the longer-term risk is if central banks do increase their inflation targets, they will effectively be saying, we've lost, we've failed in our duty, that was our mandate, and we are not able to deliver it. And that will have an implication for what happens in the markets in the future as well. So I think what I suspect is going to happen is the central banks are going to go on for quite a long time trying to prove that they can get it back down to 2%, but they may not succeed. And that will not be necessarily a positive outlook because it will imply higher inflation uh, and possibly also at the same time middling to weak growth, economic growth, sort of stagflation, which is the worst outcome of all for investors, unfortunately. Yes, entirely true. I would say that the journey from 0% yield to, let's say, in the, in the US, again, I'm, I'm concentrating today a little bit on the US because it is very much in the forefront of investors' thinking. The journey from 0% to 4% has been a very painful journey. If the next leg of the journey is a continuation from 4% to 8%, then that is going to be very painful indeed going forward. I think the investor needs to decide in his mind whether that is likely or not. Uh, if it's likely, then clearly he's got to position himself accordingly, wh whatever that means. And I don't know if you read yesterday, the governor of the Central Bank of Austria, which is not particularly important, but the Austrians do think rather like the Germans, that natural hawks and the Austrian school of economics and all the rest of it. He was extremely hawkish. And he said that we need to have three consecutive 50 basis points increases and then another 25 basis points increase in the European Central Bank's interest rate policy going forward. And you could argue that the purpose of all this of this hawkishness is obviously to dampen demand, demand in goods, above all demand in services and, and so on. And if that results in the destruction of assets, a recession, and obviously a huge downturn in financial markets, well, that's simply the price to pay. That's politically so, quite so difficult, of course. But yes, absolutely. I mean, you're so right about that. And I think this is another way of framing this particular issue, which is to say, the experience of Paul Volcker in the 1980s is one that's embedded in most central bankers' minds. They do certainly uh, study that and read about that. And uh, they have to make the decision, if they're allowed to make the decision, that uh, an increase in unemployment, a recession, hopefully a mild one, but uh, if necessary, a bad one, will be necessary to clear, if you like, the system to get back to a world in which we have an interest rate which is appropriate for uh, you know medium to long-term growth. And of course, that's politically very difficult for central banks to do that. But they are still independent, at least in name. And I think that's going to be one of the battles that will play out is whether or not central banks, if they are intent on pursuing a Volcker-like policy or an Austrian policy, shall we say, whether they're actually allowed to do that by the politicians. That will be, I think, a big, big issue for the next few years. I'm sure you would have been as interested in the one key question that Chairman Powell was asked yesterday by one of the senators who were interrogating him. I can't remember whether he was a Democrat or a Republican, but it doesn't really matter. He said that when Powell said that their dual mission is to, number one, price stability, and number two, full employment, the senator said, well, you've got your full employment now, but you don't have your price stability. And if you want to get price stability and inflation back down to where you want it to go, that is going to cause the unemployment rate to double, 
and then to double again. And he gave three examples of the connection, the relationship between price stability on the one hand and full employment on the other hand, and came up with this conclusion. I would have answered this question differently from what Chairman Powell answered it, but I do find nonetheless a lot of validity in the question. I wonder what, what your view is on this. How can you be the guardian of price stability, which is clearly an economic and monetary task, and at the same time be the guardian of full employment when you don't have your hands on the lever because achieving full employment is a political decision. And you've seen how much President Biden has done to keep the unemployment as low as possible. How do these two tasks manage to sit together side by side? That's my question. Yes. And of course, the answer is they don't always sit easily side by side. It's what's called having the best of both worlds or having your cake and eating it. It's not always possible to do that. And there's bound to be tensions. And then the issue comes down to you know, what is the right approach to take? And the Volcker-type argument would be a relatively small increase in unemployment, which affects a small proportion of the uh, population, is a price that has to be paid in order that the whole population does not suffer from the noxious effects of higher inflation. There has to be a trade-off at moments like this. And I think the criticism of the central banks is that, of course, they've dodged this issue for so long. They've actually failed to anticipate that they would have to get to this point. And the longer they delayed, the more severe the problem is going to become. But there is no simple answer. You just can't have both at the same time when it comes to turning points like the one we're in at the moment, or when you've got some external threat like an oil price crisis or the invasion of Ukraine, which has thrown the balance of supply and demand out of kilter. You just can't have it. You have to make that choice. And the question is, who is going to make that choice at the end of the day? And the legislation says one thing, and the uh, political reality may say another. That's, I think, the way that one has to see it. And it's further complicated by the way the labour market operates. You know, this question we've often discussed of participation rates. So let's say that um, a couple of hundred thousand layoffs that have taken place in the last few weeks, a couple of months, particularly the technology area. The big question to me is whether these I don't know, you'd have to go through the list to go from Amazon to Microsoft and so on and so forth. Whether these people who have been dismissed from their job or made redundant, should I say, whether they're going to bother to come back into the jobs market or whether for some reason or another they don't need to go back to work because they have to maybe live a little bit more frugally, but nonetheless, they don't really need to go back to work. And therefore, the participation rate remains abnormally low. And whether that skews, to a certain extent, the employment statistics and whether these workers who have dropped out, whether they're ever going to come back or not. Because if they don't come back, then you have full employment. And so long as you have full employment, you're going to have the weekly jobless claims, which are going to be disappointing. You're going to have the monthly payroll numbers, which are also going to be disappointing. And that's going to weigh or prolong the time it takes for inflation to come back. I suppose what I'm trying to say in all this is that you can't compare the relationship between monetary policy and employment that was prevalent 20 or 30 years ago with the situation today in which neither is monetary policy as powerful at combating inflation as it used to be, nor 
is the employment picture particularly comparable to the employment uh, picture of yesteryear or 10 years ago? Right. To which I guess uh, the answer would be, well, do you believe in capitalism or not, really? I mean, the answer to this question is to let the market decide. If it turns out that the people who've left the workforce don't want to come back, I mean, we mentioned this last month, you know, I think a, a dose of reality will mean that some of them do come back. They may think they don't have to come back to work, but they probably almost certainly will. And if you look at the, you know, the reason the American economy is the most dynamic in the world and by far, you know, the most successful economy of the last hundred years is because they do take a fairly robust attitude towards people losing their jobs. You know, they actually believe implicitly, at least, that, okay, you lose jobs in places which aren't viable anymore. But in due course, if you've got the right conditions, you create jobs elsewhere where they are needed. And you contrast that with the situation in Europe, where for in a number of industries, you know, there's very fierce organized labor resistance to anybody losing their job ever, even in the most uh, unprofitable places. Uh, and that's a recipe for lower growth and lower profits and lower employment over time, just as certainly as uh, the reverse is true for the US. So I think, you know, you're right. I mean, there may be some quirks in the employment numbers because of COVID and because of all the impact we've seen from that, not to mention all the big checks have been sent out by the US government to people, uh, which is not particularly American, I would say. <laughs> but you have to take a view about uh, capitalism from an equity market investor looking to invest in companies, you want to invest in companies that are able to, to put it bluntly, to shed labor that is redundant uh, and hire labor than in the places where it's needed. So there is a trade-off. Obviously, we, we're more aware of the costs and uh, uh, damage that uh, high unemployment can do. But that fundamental question remains. And I think it's an interesting comment when we talk about not just whether to put so much money into equities, but where to put it. I think you still have to look to the US to be the place where the bulk of the returns and the most profitable companies are going to be. I don't know if you would agree with that thought. I completely agree with that thought. The UK used to be quite a good place, but the UK equity market has changed pretty fundamentally in the last 10 years or so. So that's maybe we can talk about that the next time. But of course, you're right. And of course, the US is the standard bearer of capitalism, even though you have certain fringe politicians who try to erode that, but they're not going to succeed. And that's why you find the best companies are based in the US. You've got a much wider choice if you know exactly what you're looking for and you look around the world, you normally end up finding your best investment opportunities, especially long-term investment opportunities, which command all the attributes that a serious long-term investor in quality and in growth is looking for. You clearly uh, find them in the US. I can confirm that because that is exactly the result of the work that we do when we search for growth companies. We always end up in the USA. Absolutely. And of course, it's a big issue at the moment in the UK. You mentioned the UK. I think that's relevant because the UK equity market basically has gone nowhere for about 20 years and it's shrinking as a percentage of the world market capitalization. We're down to 4% of the global market now, which is for a global institutional investor, it's almost an irrelevance, not quite. It's still one of the larger markets uh, behind Japan at 6%, but the US is out there at 58% of world market capitalization, dominates the world equity markets. And I did actually see one other quirk from this historical study, which I thought I'd mention. This back in 1900, the UK had 25% of the world's market capitalization. The US even then was a bigger economy in terms of uh, stock market valuation. But the other two significant players were the Russians at 6%. And of course, that all disappeared in 1917. And uh, the Austria-Hungarian Empire, which had uh, 5% of the 
global market capitalization back in 1900. World's changed a lot since then, obviously. But the point I'm making is that uh, at the moment, we could talk about China, we can talk about uh, Japan and India, perhaps. But looking ahead, there's still no reason to think that the American domination is not going to continue for at least some time, uh, notwithstanding these uh, political issues that you've talked about and the pressure for a Democrat administration in particular to try and interfere with capitalism, if you like, in a way that is not traditionally been the American way, if I can put it that way. And you could even argue that it was President Trump who interfered much more in capitalism than President Biden. Of course, the backgrounds are completely different, but you could argue that Trump is more harmful or more of a danger to capitalism. And what we might do the next time, because you touched on on some very important points here, China, India, Japan, and obviously the situation in Ukraine is influencing that. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the big geopolitical blocks that seem to be developing, which may not only mean that from a geopolitical point of view, the influence of China and India and so on will change, will move upwards or downwards. And the same would apply to the US, not to mention the European Union, and whether this will have an effect on things like not only the supply chains, which caused a lot of damage last year, but also this topic of reshoring, onshoring, friendshoring, deglobalizing, and whether that is just wishful thinking on the basis that uh, if one country falls, it is then soon replaced by another country. And that's that's been a phenomenon which has gone on for decades and decades and decades. So there's always a new emerging market that replaces the older emerging market. So I think that that could have profound implications, political implications, which could then filter down and affect capital markets. I don't think so, but that's just my view, because a good business is a good business. But maybe that's something we should discuss next time or the time after. Absolutely. Well, we'll do that. We'll come back to that issue. I think it's a very important one, as you say. So I think we just conclude, Peter, by going to ask you, I mean, you were pretty cheery going into the new year. You liked what happened in January and you thought things were going well, liquidity was rising and so on. Do you still think that? The reason I was quite pleased is because I noticed that the wheat was being separated from the chaff. And whereas last year, as I said earlier, it was all about valuation and irrespective of how good your business and your business prospects were, if the P multiple or whatever Yarsik is used is too high, the share price goes down full stop. This year, you've not only seen that the laggards of last year have been the winners of this year, and quite substantially so, I may say, you know, a very big proportion of the share price declines of last year have been made back in this short time. And by the way, February hasn't been as bad for those companies as for other companies. And But if you look why, you see that finally the market is looking ahead, is looking at the guidance from these companies. If the guidance for future profit is a beat on the previous guidance, not to mention if the earnings season was a beat over expectations, then you could see that in in some areas, the market will go back to basics and will think a little bit more long-term rather than simply short-term. And from that point of view, I don't want to be the last man in if we're going to embark upon a new leg of the bull market, which may or may not be accompanied by 
the expectation that we've seen the worst in the bond market. That was a bit of a convoluted answer, but by and large, I'm still positive for this year as a whole. Right. And particularly are positive about the things that you own, which is very good to know, of course. It would be disappointing if you weren't. But yeah. yeah, the performance anomalies of last year when basically everybody got carried out, essentially, apart from some very dull companies that don't really have much of a future. There has been some reversal in that, and that is encouraging. Uh, but I have to say, against that, you've still got this longer-term dampener of the fact that uh, the prospects for the uh, equity markets generally, and the bond markets actually, are still heavily constrained by this concern we have about inflation and and the likely movement of interest rates. I think that's that's a sort of overarching consideration as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but within that, it's good to see that uh, quality is getting its uh, its due reward. Well, that- on that, I think we've ended the session on exactly the right note. And then let's try and reconvene in the next few weeks and see how we can extend our discussions to uh, peripheral issues which are equally important or if not more important and that's something to which I look forward Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.